0: Hello, my name is Justin McClure and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, who are we talking about, Will? We're talking about one of the very first movie stars and one of the early female producers and directors. That's right, it's Mabel Normand. Mabel who? Mabel Normand. She worked with Uh, Max Sennett at the Mm. Keystone Studios. She worked with Charlie Chaplin. She worked with Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle. She worked with Hal Roach as well. She was one of the very first movie stars. She was one of the first female comedy stars. And... Like so many, her career was eventually destroyed by scandal.
1: Wait, uh, I remember who this is. Wasn't she portrayed by Marissa Tomei in the Charlie Chaplin uh, biopic Chaplin, where she was a terrible, talentless hag who uh, Dan Aykroyd playing Max Sennett at one point tells Charlie Chaplin, oh,
0: we just wanted someone to stand up to her. Well, you know, it's funny you should say that because my perception of Mabel Normand for many years, and I think it... Judging by that movie, it was probably many people's perception, was based on one story of her interaction with Chaplin, and this source comes from Chaplin's autobiography, which was published in the 60s. He said... Now, I was anxious to write and direct my own comedies, so I talked to Senate about it, but he would not hear of it. Instead, he assigned me to Mabel Normand, who had just started directing her own pictures. This nettled me, for, charming as Mabel was, I doubted her competence as a director. So the first day there came the inevitable blow-up. We were on location in the suburbs of Los Angeles, and in one scene, Mabel wanted me to stand with a hose and water down the road so that the villain's car would skid over it. I suggested standing on the hose so that the water can't come out, and when I look down the nozzle, I unconsciously step off the hose and the water squirts in my face. But she shut me quickly. We have no time. We have no time. Do what you're told. That was enough. I could not take it. And from such a pretty girl. I'm sorry, Miss Normand. I will not do what I'm told. I don't think you are competent to tell me what to do.
1: That is
0: awful. So, yeah, that's pretty bad. And for you know listen I can do it funnier it's about me you don't understand I'm a genius <laughs> mm-hmm. that you know I read Chaplin's autobiography when I was and you young. love Charlie Chaplin I love Charlie Chaplin he's maybe my favorite filmmaker mm-hmm. so that anecdote I think for many years sort of set my perception about who Mabel Norman was uh, that, that
1: woman that I'm, was trying
0: to keep Chaplin um, uh, uh, from I'm, reaching his genius and I mean I'm I'm ashamed of that now because Mabel Normand is really getting reclaimed now mm-hmm. uh, she some of her films are included in both of the pioneer women directors. Mm-hmm. Blue sets. Sets. yeah. one by Kina Lorber, the other by Flickr Alley. And I think that in, in sort of silent cinema fan circles, her work is like there's there was a documentary about her a few years ago looking for mm-hmm. Mabel Normand, seeing her talent, not just as a director, as a producer, also as a performer.
1: It should be pointed out that she was in the infancy of moviemaking to the point that she was working at Biograph with... D.W. Griffith and all the other people that were coming up and
0: figuring out what movies were. She was a star before there was such a thing as a movie star. Mm -hmm. Like in those days they didn't publicize the names of actors. The actors were just employees of the studio.
1: If you see photos of like what early movie making was it's amazing. It was often like a bunch of sets all beside each other and because they're shooting silent they'd be like 12 cameras all rolling and doing their own little thing in this warehouse space.
0: And they didn't publicize size the names of these people like for example when Chaplin started to become popular people would send notes to Max senate theater owners would send notes being like send us more films with that funny man <laughs> oh wow or when mabel normand was working at biograph uh, and then she worked at vitagraph she was credited as vitagraph betty Hmm. And so people would write to fan magazines like, who is Vitagraph Betty? We want to hear more about Vitagraph Betty. She was born to a working class family in Staten Island. She started off as a model. She didn't intend to become a model. She sort of stumbled into that career because she went to one of the big department stores in downtown New York, tried to get a job. And they said, well, listen, uh, you're very pretty. We're not going to have you uh, uh, selling stuff. You're a woman. We can't have that happening. So we're going to have you posing as, as a model for our stuff. And then that led to quite a successful modeling career. And then from that, she stumbled into a film career working as an extra at D.W. Griffith's Biograph.
1: Uh, she co-starred in films with Import Cinema Club favorite William Bodine,
0: <laughs> who we've right. done an episode on as well. And that's where she met Max Sennett. Max Sennett, who sort of the godfather of American slapstick comedy with his company, Keystone, you know, that company because Keystone Cops means a very specific thing when you're talking about comedy, Mm. usually used uh, with negative connotations. And Mabel Normand became uh, not only his uh, favorite actress, but also his girlfriend and fiance in real life. They went out West when Max Sennett was given the chance to run his own studio. Max Sennett often had like the bathing beauties in his films, uh, and she became one of those. But she was also unique because not only was she a a pretty young ingenue, but she could also do heavy-duty slapstick, and she could do stunts.
1: And she was charming and magnetic on screen. Like You said she was one of the early stars, and it's not because she was put in star roles. It's because people genuinely liked to see her on screen and found warmth there that wasn't always present in the films of
0: Max Ennett. Yeah, so, you know, I was watching some of these early films uh, with an eye towards Mabel Norman this week, and it's interesting. She is by a country mile, the most understated presence in mm-hmm. them. You know, she is- uh, That fucking ham Chaplin <laughs> beside her trying to eat up all the scenery. I mean, people have said of Mabel Normand that she was sort of a mentor for Chaplin. And I mean, aside from that section, he writes about her very warmly in his autobiography.
1: Supposedly after Max Sennett hired Chaplin, uh, Chaplin didn't do so well in like the first one or two shorts that he made. And Sennett's like, "Ah, oh, man, I made a mistake. I'm just gonna get rid of this guy. Mabel Norman went, no, 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 let me work with him. I think that there's potential there that we can
0: maximize in our shorts. And I don't know if this is confirmed exactly, but I think it is assumed that she directed Chaplin in his first movie, As the Tramp, mm-hmm. Mabel's Strange Predicament.
1: Yeah, which is on one of those box sets.
0: Yeah. What did you think of the short? Mabel's Strange Predicament, you know, it's got some uh, shenanigans in it. It's fun. It's Uh, like confusion.
1: (laughs) Characters think that someone is cheating on each other. People are locked in rooms. Isn't there a dog biting at somebody as well? There's
0: a very funny bit at the beginning when Chaplin's the tramp. He's in the hotel lobby and he's a drunk in this high class hotel lobby. And he keeps trying to sit in the chair and he's falling all over the chair. We
1: should point out that this first iteration of uh, Chaplin as the tramp was more of him bringing his stage persona, which was a drunk guy, Mm. onto the screen. So he is a lecherous, unlikable slapstick buffoon in this
0: film. You know, Mabel in these films, she's very charming on Mm -hmm. screen and uh, she's quite an understated presence. She can do a lot with just her eyes or with just a little uh, smirk, you know?
1: So when people talk about Mabel Norman, they would say that she would do anything slapstick wise, Mm -hmm. like... There's claims that one of the shorts where she goes up in a hot air balloon, mm-hmm. that like she slid down the uh, rope to the ground herself, mm-hmm. that she'd be tied to train tracks, she'd dangle from like buildings. She had no problem doing any of that stuff. But I don't think like watching these shorts and features that we watch for this podcast, you would get that instantly. In the way that Chaplin and all these shorts that he shares a screen with Mabel, he's like as big as he can be, mm-hmm. like trying to take as much real
0: estate on screen as possible. God, he is such a ham. Okay, so. There was a short that she directed that he's in that I watched this week, Caught in a Cabaret, mm-hmm. which I thought was hilarious. Mm-hmm. How much comedy did Chaplin get to get versus her? Well, I mean, she directed it. I mean, it's it's Chaplin's show, yeah. Um. But, but she is the director of it. But, you know, it's been a while since I've revisited the Keystone shorts, and they're interesting to watch because they take some adjusting to. They're all shot like stage plays, basically. They're these tableaus where people will come in and out, and there's nothing in the editing or the... Camera work that directs your eye in them. Mm -hmm. Um, So, the first shot of *Caught in a Cabaret* is at this very uh, busy and seedy dive bar where Chaplin is a waiter, and he comes in. There are so many people in this frame, and you have to tell yourself. Keep your eye on Chaplin. That's the person that you have to... <laughs> yeah. And, and if you keep your eye on him, you will be able to follow the plot of this story. Um. Anyway, he ends up meeting Mabel in the park. Uh, he foils some purse snatchers, and then he tells her that he's actually rich. And in fact, he's the prime minister of Greenland. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> uh, and so she's very happy, and she's rich. And so she decides to take him to her rich society party, uh, where where he is assumed to be a millionaire. He goes back to be a waiter at the cabaret. Meanwhile, everyone at that society party is like, hey, why don't we go slumming? Why don't we go to a CD dive bar? <laughs> well, guess which one they choose? They choose the place where he's the waiter. Shenanigans ensue, stuff gets thrown, and uh, people fall over tables, and uh, every a huge mess is made, and I thought it was... I think all of these shorts, frankly, are really funny.
1: So, like, classic slapstick, <laughs> especially Keystone stuff, there's like an association that uh, people that are lightly familiar with it make, which is, oh, it's sped up motion, that's what's funny about it, and... People fall down, but like at their best, they're such like perfect little chaos machines. Oh And yeah. that the slapstick
0: is so precise in the way that it happens. Well, it's like a Jackie Chan fight, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, I mean, I know he's often compared to silent comedy, but it is really underlined for me. Cause like, I think one that we both watched. It was called, I think, His trysting Place. Yeah, also that was 1914. Where there's this single take fight scene in a, in a restaurant where Chaplin and this guy next to him are eating soup and then one of them pushes him the other pushes him and then all of a sudden there's a giant fist fight that breaks out.
1: And it takes place in one take and people are throwing vases over their head, ducking, jumping.
0: The like, choreography is just <laughs> incredible.
1: so precise yeah. in the way that it works. Mm-hmm. And like His trysting Place, like right from the get-go, Chaplin is like leading toward an open flame. There's a bunch of comedy over that. Like, he takes a baby, brings it toward the flame, pulls it away. Big fucking flame. <laughs>
0: yeah. Giant flame. But more than Chaplin, Mabel Norman is really... Her most fruitful on-screen partnership was with Roscoe, Fatty, Yarbuckle.
1: And... Fatty Arbuckle being a comedian who's most famous for getting into a scandal that destroyed his career. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that scandal was that he was charged with uh, rape and manslaughter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it's been debunked. I mean, he was acquitted twice. Tw- and and in fact, the jury went to the unusual step of apologizing for him. There's a really good book, Room Something, I'm forgetting what it's called, but it, it goes through the case and sort of explains why he was probably innocent uh, but it didn't matter it destroyed his career if you were
1: accused of anything especially if you were a woman it would destroy your career mm. and did you watch
0: any fatty alberkle uh, mabel norman shorts yeah i watched mabel and fatty's wash day mm-hmm. uh which is on one of the sets mabel directed it they star as two neighbors who uh, are having their wash day and they as they're Putting up their clothes, they accidentally see each other's underwear, which is gi- gigantic <laughs> <Double> 1914 <bank. laughs> underwear. Uh, but it's okay, and they they are quite fond of each other, and they're both in uh, difficult marriages with uh, abusive people, t- terrible spouses. And they go to the park, and then while their spouses are asleep, they decide to go get a drink together uh oh you know there's shenanigans and confusions people falling all over all these movies are set in a park because there was a park right next, next to the door studio.
1: and because the cameras that they were using the film wasn't sensitive so you needed a lot of
0: light yeah which is why you would go shoot outside and, and that's why they chose los angeles as mm-hmm. the film capital of the world
1: and if you look at any early film studios they're built with giant like glass cages mm-hmm. because that way the light could shoot through and you could actually get an image on your screen
0: another interesting thing about these keystone films is they would often just use if there was a big event happening near the studio they would go they would go use it as a cheap background so the movie that chaplin writes about in his autobiography which was called mabel at the wheel they did it at this auto race that was nearby and so chaplin and mabel normand and max Senna and others are doing you know comedy bits with this 1914 audience behind them mm-hmm. it's like these people behind them are oblivious to the fact that, that like charlie chaplin and mabel normand are doing shtick right yeah. by them and that 100 years later they will be <laughs> preserved and this will be the only thing their life Will mean. Well, I also w- revisited the first feature length comedy ever made, Tilly's Punctured Romance, which
1: stars. Three uh, major actors because it has Charlie Chaplin, Mabel Norman, and Canada's own Marie Dressler. <laughs>
0: and if you go to Coburg, Ontario, you can in fact visit the Marie Dressler Museum. Is Marie Dressler
1: not only was she one of the first stars, but she was an old, I guess, um
0: crotchety lady. Rather and that's what made her popular. Rather rotund mm-hmm. also. Uh she was a big Broadway star. Mm-hmm. And that's back when like being a Broadway star Meant something more <laughs> cultural cachet yeah. than being a movie star did. But yeah, in this one. Chaplin is a con artist who comes upon marie dressler who's inherited a lot of money tries to marry her steal her money mabel normand is Chaplin's real girlfriend and is sort of in cahoots with them and again mabel normand is kind of the grounding force uh surrounded by all all these like absurd slapstick hams (laughs) Uh, you know the the movie opens with marie dressler is like Throwing a brick for her dog to catch, and then uh, of course the brick hits Charlie Chaplin in the face, and, <laughs> and that, he does
1: like a flip, and he's like,
0: "Oh!" And, like that's the kind of comedy that I love. Like this <laughs> be, it, it is absolutely full of people getting hurt, uh, people's asses getting kicked, <laughs> um, people falling downstairs. There's a part where. Marie Dressler and Chaplin go to this big mansion they've in- they've inherited and they've got these butlers that stand around, you know, like Buckingham Palace guards, just motionless. So they start like blowing smoke in their faces and like hitting them and <laughs> fucking them up because it's like, well, you know, what else would you do if you have guards? Just but fuck them up. You
1: saw this movie and you went, okay, you don't need to watch it. Like, I got it. I could talk about it.
0: Well, I would, I said that you didn't need to watch it because I think it's like not the most ideal mm. uh, Mabel Normand movie. But one that is, is, a movie called Mickey from mm-hmm. 1918.
1: And this not only starred Mabel Norman, but it was also produced by her at her own studio.
0: So she was engaged to Max Senate shortly before the wedding. Uh, she caught him cheating on her.
1: And the story goes in a million different directions. In one version, she was uh, hit over the head by Max uh, Sennett's a mistress's vase. Mm-hmm. Uh, in another one, she tried to commit suicide. But what essentially happened in the scenario is that she hurt herself badly enough that she had to step back for for
0: a while from the movie industry. Mm-hmm. She went back east, and then Max Sennett, I guess to lure her back, uh, promised her her own movie studio, the Mabel Norman Motion Picture Company, which was the first motion picture company named for a woman.
1: Mm-hmm. And she was in charge and she didn't direct the film that she starred in Mickey, but she was supposedly the creative force behind it. And sh- she wanted to make this film separate from her Max Senate stuff in the sense that she wasn't going to go for the big, broad Charlie Chaplin style slapstick. She wanted to be more of a dramatic, kind of romantic film to show a different side of her.
0: Max Sennett doesn't seem to have been a very sophisticated producer. Like he had certain theories about it has to be fast, fast, fast. Mm -hmm. You can't let the audience think. And if they're bored for even a second, then it's a problem. But Mickey is like a character driven comedy. Mm -hmm.
1: I mean, there's slapstick. She dangles from a roof at the end. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's some fight scenes between the men, but it is kind of like very gentle and kind of non-threatening, mm-hmm. and it never reaches any heights of, like, melodrama that you could associate with other films around this period. It's
0: basically a Mary Pickford movie. Yeah, and it, she was good friends with Mary Pickford, because mm-hmm. they came up together through the Biograph Company. The story is Mabel plays the title character, Mickey, who is a orphan, an adult orphan, basically, but she's been entrusted to the care of this poor minor by uh, the miner's former partner who died. and. She has some wealthy family in the city. The wealthy family meet her, realize that, oh, she's just a poor girl, so they make her be the janitor of their home. Uh, then she goes back to the <laughs> just mine. Just like the favorite. Then she goes back to the mine, and uh oh, wouldn't you believe it? Somebody struck oil, and she's now she really is rich. rich. I was struck by how class conscious this movie, and in fact, I think all the movies that I saw, are. This was a time when the working class in America was bigger than it is now. Mm-hmm. I think perhaps people were just like more conscious of the fact that there were the rich people and then there were the rest of us. And so many of these comedies are about transgressing that. Mm-hmm. Someone poor is
1: assumed to be rich and mm-hmm. that's where the comedy comes. Yeah.
0: And there's a cathartic joy in watching the rich people humiliated.
1: So uh, Mickey as we said, is a very pleasant film. It's not one that I would go out and be like, you got to see this. Cause it is like those Mary Pickford dramas that we talked about way back in the William Bodine episode that we did. But this film, Mickey was a massive hit, supposedly the biggest hit of 1918, the year it came out.
0: Yeah. I mean, I read that this was a time when, you know, the idea of, an independent woman was starting to become more mainstream. There was well, a, not that mainstream, <laughs> not that, that, not that mainstream, but like, you know, there was such thing as the suffragette movement at mm-hmm. this time, for instance, there were such thing as women in the workforce and these trends happening made a story like this or, and a star like Mabel, kind of this free spirited girl, uh, so, it's a good thing she took that money and made more feature films, right? Well, nope. <laughs> unfortunately, Max Senate took all the profits and used the profit to build his own studio, the Max Senate Studio. So, what a jackass. Mickey was the first, and despite the film's enormous box office success, it was the first and last film from the Mabel Normand Film Company.
1: And not only did he say, ah, oh, you know what, it's only business, supposedly, when he took all that money, I don't know why she would be so offended. He also, in his biography, claims that Mickey he wasn't that big a box office success and that he just kept trying to play it until it hit and it was really him that did all the work mm-hmm. what a what a jerk well she ditched him and she signed with Samuel Goldwyn who promised her big
0: things at his company and she did star in a bunch of films that were supposedly very unmemorable yeah and once Goldwyn had money troubles she went back with Max Sennett because Max Sennett I guess uh, made her a favorable offer mm-hmm. and they made a couple more movies but this is around the time when scandal starts to strike in her Scandal game. number one Scandal number one. So Mabel was dating the film director, William Desmond Taylor, and she was the last person to see him alive. She uh, left his home and then somebody we don't know. We still don't know who it's an unsolved mystery shot him and you know, she had an alibi for where she was that night. No, it was supposedly airtight. Doesn't matter. And just the connection, you know, there's something here that kind of smells like sex. Mm -hmm. You know? So that's a problem. And also, stories started to get spun about, oh, uh, were there there drugs there? Was he in cahoots with this, like, drug mafia? They they painted her as a drug
1: addict, and, like, it was her dealer that shot him, Mm -hmm. or other horrible stuff, to the point that the public, or I don't know what Uh, governing bodies did this decided to ban her movies Mm -hmm. and that they couldn't be shown anymore because she was involved in this
0: now she was extremely popular at the time and Mm -hmm. the movies were very successful and she was very well liked so uh, it was possible to emerge from the scandal still at the time Mm -hmm she continued to make a couple movies with Max Senate. She made one that we both watched called The Extra Girl. And I guess we'll get to scandal number two in a sec.
1: So yeah, we can talk about The Extra Girl, which I think is almost a better melding of uh, the Mickey formula with some
0: extra slapstick. She gets chased by a lion at one point. I did like The Extra Girl better than Mm -hmm. I liked Mickey. And it was also 67 minutes long. But it also
1: had that feeling of like, this is a movie about um, Mabel Norman going to Hollywood and getting to shenanigans. Why is she in Hollywood yet? (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, she's just a poor girl who dreams of stardom and then uh, gets to go to Hollywood because somebody has sent her picture to the Hollywood studios, but it actually wasn't her picture. It was somebody apparently more attractive than her, which is interesting to think because Mabel Normand is very attractive. Yes. Anyway, she gets to Hollywood and they're like, oh, you're not the girl we want. You're going to be a janitor. So she becomes a janitor again.
1: And then she gets a screen test, but everything goes wrong. She lets a line out of a cage and it has a terrible final scene where she goes, you know what? What? <laughs> I'm more happy being a mother and taking care of children than having a movie career the end
0: <laughs> yes uh, that's a message that will not be very fashionable if you watch it right now
1: because <laughs> it's a bad message <laughs> it's a bad nothing message. about fashionableness <laughs> you know what you're right and I'm sure Max Sennett is behind <laughs> the scenes going yeah that's what Mabel Norman should do she should just have a family with me and I can have my affairs and then she not get involved in all this stuff uh, it does have that great scene with the lion though. it does that's a great and she's like right face to face with the lion who's like jumping yeah.
0: over doors to like get at her and i think you can really get why she was a star mm-hmm. like, like there's a there's a lightness to her screen presence you know she can she can kind of do it all she can do yeah she can do drama she can do comedy she can slapstick yeah. and obviously she was behind the scene and intimidating all the men including charlie chaplin and being like listen we can't have women doing this kind of stuff you know by the way as i was rereading that chapter of chaplin's autobiography this week he was mentioning how unpopular he was with the crew of that particular movie mabel at the wheel huh, now,
1: i wonder why so, some
0: of those guys look like they wanted to sock him in the face and you know reading it now it's like well that's really nice that they were on mabel's side yeah because
1: she was probably
0: a good director that they liked working with <laughs> and and you know i guess that gag of him looking in the hose and getting sprayed with the hose probably yeah. probably wasn't that exciting
1: and we have to understand as well as like mabel was creating all of the stuff with Max senate and all the other people as it was going on mm-hmm. i read somewhere that she invented the first custard pie fight to appear in movies wow uh i don't know how much you know play that's true i really hope that it's true Mm. but you can tell as her career went along even the scandals that she got involved with, that the people were just happy to jump on her and destroy her because she was in their way. And that it was like an affront to them that this woman was directing and she got her own studio and she could be a star.
0: So the second major scandal came in 1924, around the time when the extra girl would have been playing in theaters. She was, I guess, seeing an oil tycoon named Cortland S. Dines, who was shot and the person who shot him was Mabel's driver. With her gun. And it seems that Mabel and Cortland S. Dines, what a great name, <laughs> yes, uh, were having an altercation and this driver came in and shot him. And it seems that the driver was overly obsessed with Mabel. And had there been more bullets in the gun, he likely would have shot her and himself. Mm-hmm. As it turns out, Cortland S. Dyers did not die. But to be involved in two... Gun incidents so close to each other. And being a woman. And being a woman. Uh Her ki- films were banned again. Kind of rang the death knell on her career. Yeah, her and, films were banned. And to your point about her being a woman, it is interesting to compare her to Charlie Chaplin in the twenties, who had It was some, a pedophile. Who was a pedophile? <laughs> who had some very serious yeah. scandals, including, you know, two very splashy divorces. Two girls that he married when they were sixteen. Mm-hmm. I mean, those are some very heavy scandals to survive. Yeah,
1: but he survived it because he's a white guy and people
0: liked him. Yeah, and also he had the tramp, and mm-hmm. you know you can hide behind that character. His off-screen persona was so different from the tramp.
1: Mabel Norman, in her shorts, like Jackie Chan, was credited as Mabel Norman. That was her character name in all of her films. Yeah, like people associated this image of this kind of working-class woman who kind of hobnob with rich people as her, mm-hmm. and I think that. When the, that kind of illusion was shattered, they just jumped on it.
0: Also, there's like an, there's kind of an innocence and a purity to her mm-hmm. screen persona, don't you think? Yes, yeah. Like, uh, which, you know, once you bring in this this uh, shady business of sex and drugs and alcoholism and uh, murder, mm-hmm. um,
1: yeah, the tramp would never do any of those things. Of course, even not. though he was on William Randolph Hearst's boat as well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So many
0: (laughs) scandals. So, you know, the Richard Attenborough biopic Chaplin, at the end of it...
1: Oh my God. Yeah, I sent you this still frame (laughs) because I was watching the end, which... I haven't watched Chaplin in ages. What what a joke that movie it's is. A terrible film. <laughs> that ends in Robert Downey Jr in old age makeup just his eyes leaking like he's about to start melting like in Raiders of the Lost Ark. And uh, title cards came come up of like Charlie Chaplin lived his life his wife loved him Mabel Norman it just comes up like She died a drug addict, and that's essentially it. Yeah,
0: and she never acted again, which isn't actually true, because after the scandal, she acted in the stage, she had a couple of other film appearances, Mm -hmm. but, you know... She was in a Leo uh, McCary film. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, uh, alcoholism was definitely catching up to her at this time, you could see it on her face, Mm -hmm. but she also had tuberculosis, and the last three years of her life, up to when she died in 1930 were essentially just battling tuberculosis. Mm -hmm. Not only was she pulled out of the system so she couldn't evolve as a filmmaker,
1: she died in a way that, like, her films are kind of available on public domain, doopy versions, but she's someone who is, because she's in the shadow of Chaplin, always the person who tried to get in his way, but he was the genius and he was able to fight through.
0: And so that's starting to change. Mm -hmm. People are starting to look back at her and see who she was and what she did
1: and how important she was in the evolution of these films
0: and in the evolution of Chaplin too
1: yeah frankly. yeah <laughs> i mean without her would we have a Chaplin? probably not, not. yeah yep. who knows So I would definitely recommend checking out Mabel's Strange Predicament, which she directed, and the other Chaplin one you mentioned. Uh,
0: Caught in a Cabaret is very funny.
1: And just start from there and just, you can kind of explore There's so much, she's acted in 220
0: things. Oh, I also recommend, she didn't direct it, but she acted in it. Fatty and Mabel Adrift. Mm, Uh, Yeah, that's another one of those classic ones. So check those out. They're available
1: all on YouTube. And if you go to Canopy, which is a free streaming service, from
0: Canadian public libraries I don't know if it works in the it US works in the US as well yeah
1: and you can check out all the Flickr Alley stuff that they've released including the extra girl which we mentioned in pristine quality do we have any letters this week we do and as per usual you can send us emails at Podcast at gmail.com the first letter is from JP McDevitt And he writes, you talked about Jackie Gleason chewing up the scenery in Smokey and the Bandit. What are some of your favorite examples of actors chewing it up like that? And how would you define that phrase? I got to see Exorcist 3 in 35mm last year, and it's well worth watching at least the first 30 minutes purely for George C. Scott. He chews it better than I can ever remember seeing, including at least one scene where the other actor is obviously trying not to break. Fantastically entertaining. Well, thank you very much for that letter, J.P. McDevitt. And, uh, yeah, George C. Scott in most roles is like, arr, 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 I like him in
0: any... hardcore. Oh,
1: yeah. Turn it off! Turn it off! <laughs> As far as other actors that like ham it up, I mean anything that al pacino is in and we've talked about the greatest scene of all time where al pacino uh does the musical number in jack and jill (laughs) *Dunka Dunka Dunka Dunka
0: Dunka*. chino i find him a little tiresome sometimes too hammy what about nick cage do you think he's too big i like nick cage when he is big Mm -hmm. i think actually oftentimes nick cage is not big enough i think he sleepwalks through a lot of stuff
1: i think that when he's committed he Mm -hmm. goes for it but when he's in some bulgarian green screen movie he's like "Ah, i don't care
0: i liked him in mandy this year Mm -hmm. you know the scene that everyone talks about where he's like drinking the tequila and he's sitting there in his underwear and And yelling.
1: People tend to forget that this is Academy Award winning uh, Nicolas Cage. That's right. Who won for Leaving Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. And if you watch that movie it's just a Nick Cage
0: performance in
1: the dramatic context to make it work.
0: I like us uh, certain of the klaus kinski performances for this mm-hmm. bad man klaus kinski i think cobra verde has some very uh, intense scenery chewing in it
1: like all that i can think of are like youtube clips maybe you shouldn't be living here. oh
0: that's my favorite yeah, yeah. pierce brosnan um in, i don't remember the name of the movie uh, Taffin, I yeah believe. A movie that only exists now in, the, in that one scene.
1: I mean, we talked about an actor who made a career of chewing the scenery, Mr. Jack Nicholson. So, you know, just go through that episode and pick the best. <laughs> so our next letter is from Emil Dirks. And it goes, Dear, how did this get made?
0: Whoa, whoa, whoa. What is this? Get the fuck out.
1: <laughs> I mean, Dear Justin and Will. Your show has been a constant companion to me as I finish my doctoral degree at the University of Toronto. Wow. Hmm. I can't tell you how many nights I've stayed awake pouring over some dry academic texts. You know what? Just quit school. <laughs> Listening to you chuckling away in the background about some director i've never heard of (laughs) you've made the grinding slog that is graduate studies just a touch more bearable by your sincere appreciation for cinema in its best and most disreputable forms for devoted fans of yours like myself who also call hogtown home that's toronto for all you non-torontonians there is not insignificant chance that we may one day bump into our heroes in the flesh I'm sure men of your renown and elevated This is a threat, isn't it? <laughs> I'm sure men of your renown and elevated social station are tired of <laughs> swatting away like flies, the mouth breathing proles oh. who regularly cajole you for autographs or a moment of your time. Tell me about it. So I'd like to ask, what is the proper etiquette should a fan ever cross your path please explain on a scale of feigned indifference to Rupert Pumpkin-esque enthusiasm <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> um, I would say be polite
1: yeah <laughs> but you... I wish you got cancer
0: I think we have been approached a few times over the years we have yeah where people you know often
1: would go hey are you Justin from the Important Cinema Club and I yeah. would go no I don't know what that is and keep walking no I go oh yeah that's me and they're like oh I'm a big fan and I'm like oh thank you very much
0: well you know I feel like <laughs> I'm the one that that needs advice here because the small number of moments that that has happened, I have invariably been very awkward. Not making eye contact, and, looking and away. Mumbling and being like, oh, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that's me because because I don't want to disappoint the fans. Uh, yeah,
1: so what... But I do, inevitably. Can we find, like, like a shtick you can do where you're like, yeah, that's me. Let that and you, like, dance off or something like that? Um, you jump on your jetpack and you zoom away. Maybe what we should do is just deny it. You know, when I was a fan of people I would go up to them like little nobodies and if they ignored me or like looked away
0: that stuck with me my entire life okay that's what I have thought whenever <laughs> <Yes>. it's happened <laughs> yeah. yeah tossing and turning in bed I realized that this could be a a key moment in how they view me in the future <laughs>
1: Yeah, just be polite. Ask that question that I said, and we'll chit chat a little bit.
0: But listen, if you're listening to the (laughs) podcast, that means we like you.
1: Yeah, we do like you. And finally, the letter continues. Can you please record a Patreon episode on film Twitter? And that's in quotation marks. I have no interest in wading into these waters myself, but would be interested to hear your thoughts on this particular online community. Yours respectfully, Emil. I'm not really in film Twitter. Could you explain what it is to the listener, Will? Because you're involved in this and you've often complained about it. And I go, why don't you just uh, unfollow them? And you're like, I can't.
0: Really? Is there anything to know? Like they're Uh,
1: just people online? Yeah, just people online. Trying to one up themselves or I don't know what But people like. There's particular quirks that come up in this community that are made fun of. Like, you'll see a tweet like, ah, this couldn't be more film Twitter, or I don't know. Um, I love
0: Paddington too <laughs> Yeah,
1: that's right. All,
0: I do love Paddington 2. All, all of that. You know, there's... Uh, I don't know if I have a lot of insight into the topic of film Twitter. I think... What there, about Mordecai Twitter? Mordecai Twitter, I'm the president <laughs> and founding member of. Uh, I like... Uh, I like hanging out with my pals online. Mm-hmm. I like having a good time. I like cracking open some brewskis and having a, a beer with the boys.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: You know, there are many people on film Twitter who I don't follow. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I don't follow any of them. So yeah. I never know what's going on yeah. just because they tweet too much. Here's what
0: I think. <laughs> my my feeling about the internet and Twitter is you should be yourself mm-hmm. and you should hang out with your friends and interact with the people you like.
1: All right. So don't join Twitter or any social media and don't
0: talk to anybody. Go Stay li- at home. Go live in the
1: woods. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> (laughs) And remember, the first thing we said, quit university and don't
0: do any post secondary education. Uh, But thank you for writing seriously. And if you do come up and say hi, uh, that would be lovely. We very appreciate it. We will hold it like a badge in our hearts. Mm -hmm. Our next letter is from Harris Frost,
1: and it goes, Hi, Justin and Will. I'm a huge fan of the podcast. I love your irony, bro sense of humor. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I think (laughs) that's me that he's talking about. (laughs) Your infectious love of trash outsider cinema and the breadth of topics that you cover. As an anglo montrealer who went to a Francophone elementary school, I particularly appreciated your episode on popular Quebec cinema. Although, beside Les Boys and Elvis Graton, the movies you discussed were before my time. Justin's story about resenting French-Canadian Quebecois culture because he was so surrounded by it really resonated with me. Ah, well, thank you very much. In addition to Québécois blockbusters like Nitro, Dans un galaxy près de chez vous, Le Film, and *Ne Rouge, which I actually know is from the director of Bon Cop, Bad Cop, and also stars Patrick Girard. I know all these movies. <laughs> Nitro is actually one that I really enjoy, even though it's directed by the guy who made Bon Cop, Bad Cop 2, because Nitro was pitched as like a Fast and the Furious ripoff mm. but it's really like more of a lean mean and depressing 70s kind of like thriller mm. and the letter continues uh, there was one movie from France that was unfathomably popular in Quebec in the mid 2000s. I'd nice. be curious to hear what Justin's relationship to that movie is and will if he's seen or heard about it. I have not. So I know this movie only because I'm a fan of its director James Us. It stars uh, Jean Jardin, the guy who won the Oscar for the art. Mm -hmm. and it was before the artist came out and he plays a surfer dude that's obsessed with Point Break and the Patrick Swayze character. And it's just kind of like a very silly slapstick comedy kind of thing. I saw it. It wasn't really for me. And I am not surprised that it became a massive hit in Quebec. Uh, I should point out that I'm really happy somebody wrote about this because we did the Quebec Popular Cinema one and we're like, oh boy, I don't know if anybody's going <laughs> to uh, listen to this because it's a very particular subject. But Clearly the people for whom that resonates,
0: it resonates very strongly.
1: So, uh, yeah, thanks very much. Very much for saying that. And the letter ends. Thanks for all the podcasts and for all the great uh, film recommendations. P.S. You've done an episode on Ebert and Kale. What about this generation's critic? Try to guess who it is. Uh, David Ehrlich? Nope. Even more ironic than what is the most ironic? Uh, Oh, oh, I know. Lights, camera, Jackson. (laughs) You're right. Yeah. (laughs) What's funny is that we were actually talking about this a little bit earlier, and I'm like, "Well, do people still, you know, laugh at this guy, or what's going on?" Lights, camera,
0: Jackson. I think is like 19 or 20 now, so he's not even a kid critic anymore. Mm. But you know, here's the thing about Lights, camera, Jackson. Okay. He likes movies. Mm Hmm. And I, I, you respect that. that? Yeah. Yeah. You wish he'd be your friend. He likes movies. I would love to have Lights, camera, Jackson as a friend. (laughs) Okay. So, Lights, if you're listening, you and me, me, let's get together. New podcast. Lights, camera, will. So, on our
1: Patreon this week, we're talking about the Shaw Brothers. That's Uh, right. We said, I don't remember when, that we would never do an episode like this just about that particular subject. Well, whoa, oh we are, because we're pressed for time, and we just saw a Shaw Brothers movie. So I went into the episode wanting to talk about films that aren't usually associated with them, so I tried to recommend some films that are not directed by Chang Che or Lark Har Lung, that most of the films you talk about Shaw Brothers, they were directed by those two men. Mm. So that's essentially what I'm going to talk about, and Will had some recommendations as well. And I think Shaw Brothers is really fascinating as... An entity that people don't realize what they were like they think of them oh yeah they made kung fu films that were mostly shot on sets but they were so much more than that they were tougher and more regimented than anything that ever
0: appeared in Hollywood next week on the podcast we're going to be talking about somebody whose name I can't pronounce well I'm gonna wait for you to say it but you'll know it when I start saying it it's a pitch at pong we're as yeah, okay.
1: and, we are as a Yeah. Okay. We are as a Or
0: as his Western friends call him, Joe. He I is, can't even say his first name, even though you just said it. By the time we do the podcast next week, we will have looked up how to pronounce
1: it. <laughs> <before>. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. But now we're just uh, by the seat of our pants.
0: But he is the director of the Palme d'Or winning film, Uncle Boon Me, who can recall his past lives, along with such films as Tropical Malady, Cemetery, Cemetery of Splendor. Of Splendor uh, many others. I recently revisited Uncle Boon Me and was kind of blown away by it. I mm. thought it was a beautiful film. So I would like to dive into his filmography. filmography. Yeah. He actually
1: yeah. hasn't made that many movies, mm-hmm. but the ones that he made were very important. Yeah. And I'm really excited to also explore his filmography.
0: And, you know, he is considered such a high art, uh, almost esoteric guy. But I think his movies are simpler than they appear. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, they're, they're, they're <laughs> all
1: there. You're a galaxy brain. You're like, I understand these.
0: <laughs> but here's the thing. I don't fully understand them. And but, that's, you yeah, embrace that. They're more approachable
1: yeah. than his reputation yeah. would lead you to believe. Yeah. So that's what we're doing next week. And just a reminder to become a Patreon subscriber, go to uh, patreon.com slash the important cinema club. $5 will get you uh, an exclusive Episode every week. $10 will get you a newsletter that is written every month and gets shipped out to you in the snail mail. We should point out that this week, for the first time, we did a video that you can find on YouTube Mm -hmm. by searching Important Cinema Club, I guess uh, one of the movies we talked about on it, Glass, and the Netflix fire fest documentary mm-hmm. video content that's what people want right take
0: a screen grab and then photoshop yourself in it
1: and it's like you're friends with us that's right <laughs> oh wait no there was that whole um article that came out that video is not the future and the numbers were all trumped up oh, what are no. we doing
0: will <laughs> See, i guess we're never gonna make a living off this <laughs> no well until next week my name is will Slam. i'm justin the glue thanks for listening This week, Jonas Mikas died. I believe that's how you pronounce the name. Mm -hmm. It's like so many names, it's a name that I'm more used to reading than saying out loud. But Jonas Mikas was a writer, a poet, experimental filmmaker, and most important, I think, as a promoter of experimental film and offbeat film culture in New York City mm-hmm. and by extension the rest of the world as well
1: he was one of the kind of you know champions of all the movies that we know now as like classic American experimental cinema coming up out of the 60s and 70s.
0: I mean, he was the kind of guy who was, you know, fighting court battles over flaming creatures mm-hmm. and Scorpio rising. Like
1: he uh, ran some theaters and film societies as well, didn't he? Yeah. Uh Throughout his career.
0: That's right. And in fact, you know, it was Andy Warhol who started going to his screenings that led Andy Warhol to make all of his experimental films. I know Jonas Mekas was also close friends with uh, John Lennon and Yoko Ono mm-hmm. and, and sort of Uh, helped them make experimental films i mean this is a guy with whose influence was much vaster than you might initially think it was and you can still
1: um check out his critical writings because he did publish some in a book form recently Mm. and as you pointed out when we were talking about this years ago when it Mm. came i think we may have talked about in one of the early episodes of the podcast that like it's really fun at first and then you're like oh okay (laughs) like because his job is championing this stuff yeah. it's just about talking enthusiastically
0: about yeah it. he's a promoter not a critic mm-hmm. and so he had this column in the village voice called movie journal and it was collected into a book called movie journal where he would say stan brackage has made his film dog star man and it is epochal. uh but what is it about to say what is it is about is to uh demystify it the to- only way you could find out is by paying five dollars <laughs>
1: and coming <laughs> to my cinema to find
0: out yeah but that book and those columns are a great time capsule of when these movies were coming out and the way they were being talked about at the time um i mean also he was a filmmaker Mm -hmm. he's well known for walden and lost 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 which i haven't seen but he made these diary type films just just uh collections of footage that he shot i mean i've seen a few of his movies and i remember going to see one at the anthology film archives which was the movie theater that he founded in new york Mm -hmm. It was called My Mars Bar Movie. (laughs) And not the chocolate bar, but there was a bar in the Lower East Side called the Mars Bar where, you know, people would hang out. And it was like so many places uh, steamrolled to make uh, a condo. And I remember seeing the movie and not quite understanding what the point of it was. It was Mm. like, oh, geez. OK, it's a bar whatever. But now I'm older and wiser and I've seen lots of beloved places, you know, get torn down and replaced by condos. Yes. Um. And I think about that movie a lot. It's very mm. resonant. Like his movies are very much about these like bottled, preserved moments of time that would have otherwise been forgotten.